Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Education Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Katina Rogers about her book, Putting the Humanities PhD to Work, Thriving in and Beyond the Classroom, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Welcome, Katina. Thank you so much for having me. So please tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Sure, I'd love to. Um, So I have a PhD in comparative literature from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And um, I wasn't sure as a graduate student what I was going to do with my studies. I didn't come in with a a strong sense of wanting to pursue a faculty career necessarily, but I also just didn't have a lot of grounding in um, what graduate education looked like and what the possibilities were, um, would be for me after I finished. Um, I ended up finding my way into a career in academic administration, which I love and I find has given me an opportunity to really think about systems and structures of higher ed in a way that um, I find really satisfying and intellectually engaging. Um, But I didn't have a lot of guides along the way as I was walking through that process. And um, I wrote the book in part because of that experience that I had had of finding my way through, um, you know, trying to learn what grad school was about while I was in it, um, finding my way to mentors who were supportive of different types of pathways, um, and thinking about the kinds of skills that I even had as a doctoral student and uh, with the the various career experiences I had had before going to grad school and putting all of that together. Um, but what what made it for me shift from just a collection of my own experiences to something that could become a research grounded book um, was some work that I did as a postdoctoral fellow with the University of Virginia a few years ago. Um, I was hired. Um, when the Scholarly Communication Institute was still based at UVA. And they asked me to conduct a survey of people who um, had either had advanced degrees in the humanities or had, you know, they were ABD, they had almost finished um, a course of study and who were working in career pathways outside of the classroom. Um, And to ask them a series of questions about the the degree to which they felt prepared for the careers that they were in, um, ways in which they felt that they were using the skills that they had gained as a doctoral student um, or as a master's student in some cases, um, and what they felt they needed to learn on the job. And um, as the flip side of that, I also surveyed their employers to find out what the most um, significant skills were that led them to hire people who had these advanced degrees. And what I found through that study was that, I think it won't be surprising to most people, but um, I found that people were not by and large systematically prepared by their graduate programs for the kinds of careers that they were in. But at the same time, they found that they had a lot of the skills that they needed and that were valued in that workplace. They just had to find new ways to translate those skills and, and to make use of them. 
So um, I wanted to write the book both to embed that study in a broader sense of um, my own experiences and the experiences of other people who have gone into pathways like mine, and also to ground a conversation about career pathways in a much broader sense of graduate education reform that includes questions of equity, um, that includes questions of you know the, the purpose of humanities education and why we do what we do, what good it can do in the world, um, and, uh, and that thinks about things like, you know, labor practices. What does it mean that as an academic institution uh, or a collection of academic institutions that we are systematically devaluing one of the main um, things that we do? You know, that if we're undervaluing teaching, what does that mean about our um, our goals and how we understand our mission. Um, So I think that the book is, uh, I intended it to be both something that provides some really concrete advice, both for people who are thinking about their own pathways and also importantly, I think for um, faculty members and advisors who are um, guiding students and creating structures um, for doctoral students in their programs but also to zoom out from that and really think about how these questions of career pathways fit into that broader picture, as well as the intellectual project of um, of doctoral study more widely. I think that's what's most striking to me about your book is that it is very concrete and practical about post-PhD careers, but it's tackling three very big issues in academia all at the same time in a very um, readable and fairly short book. So it's quite an accomplishment, I think. But these post-PhD careers, university and academic labor practices, and inclusivity and equity and what that would could truly look like. So before we start to get into the details, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about not just the concepts and the um, but I think the values that undergird your approach in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think as you were as you were starting to frame the question, I was thinking about the flip side of that, which is I think the values of the institution that mean that all of these different areas are so deeply linked. And for me, that value is prestige. And I think that um, this this undercurrent of a reliance on prestige and kind of a chasing of prestige is really one of the main drivers of many of the problems that we see in higher ed um, today. And I hope that my book takes a counter approach to that, that tries to look at um, a sense of, you know, both instrumentality, I guess, like what the humanities can do in the world, what it means to pursue these um deep and complex lines of inquiry um, when we're going through so many, you know, moments of societal upheaval at the same time, um, you know, what is the good of that study? Um, And along with that sort of instrumentality, also just thinking about a broader sense of public value that goes beyond a question of utility, thinking about, um, you know, do do we or can we collectively see higher education as something that is a public good as opposed to something that um, serves private gain and that serves this economy of prestige? Um, so I, I think that that, uh, that emphasis on the public good is something that I hope people come away with. Even though the book focuses to a large extent on post-PhD careers outside of academia, 
In your first chapter, you confront what you call the hidden realities of faculty work and the problem of love. So talk more about academic labor and why it was important to you to start with this, what I would call myth-busting of the ideal of um, this um, work of being a professor. Sure. Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that one of the challenges that we run into when we try to talk about different types of pathways um, for people who, who have PhDs is that things automatically end up in a hierarchy, whether we intend them to or not. And so when we're talking about academic and non-academic or academic and alt-dac or however you want to frame it, there's always this recurring sense that still the desirable pathway is, you know, a tenured professor at a research institution. But I think that without really deconstructing that a bit and thinking about what that actually looks like as work, there's not really any way to have a full conversation about what we are looking for out of work. Um, I think that you know, it's it's so common to think about a faculty career as something that is um, vocational. I mean, almost in the religious sense of vocation, that it's something that someone feels called to do, that they love to do, um, and that they find value in doing. But when you see that as a vocation, when you see it as something you love, rather than seeing it as as work, it's very easy to slide into a situation of labor exploitation. And I think this is part of how we end up with so many um, adjunct positions that are so grossly underpaid and undersupported is that there's this, this institutional sense that uh, we shouldn't be doing this work for wages. We shouldn't be doing this work for stability and benefits. We should be doing this work because we love to teach. Um, and I, I think that that is a very dangerous line of thinking. Um, and so uh, along with that, I mean, I think that in many cases, even people who do find their way into tenure track positions are often surprised by what that work looks like when they get there. There's just a lot that we don't have a chance to see as graduate students, and a lot of it is not glamorous. Um, and as more of the labor has been shifting towards um, untenured faculty um, and non-tenure track faculty, the service requirements on tenure track faculty are getting heavier and heavier. So really that, that work is becoming quite intense. I mean, not that it, it wasn't previously, but um, the, the burden and the shared governance that are intended within that tenure track system are not being shared as widely as they I think should be. Um, and so by talking about what that work actually looks like, it makes it much easier for someone to say, Oh, that, Hmm that might not be for me actually, or that's not the way that I prefer to work. Or I, you know, I like working on projects collectively with people. And it sounds like that particular faculty role wouldn't necessarily allow me to do that. And so I think that if we're going to be talking about things like workplaces and, you know, where we live and, you know, being uh, what, what our families might need, whoever we consider to be our families, um, all of those conversations can be grounded much more concretely when we also understand faculty work as work. And I guess the other thing that I would say um, about that is that I think that this, the skills that um, are often talked about when we're talking about career pathways outside of faculty positions are really, really good in faculty positions too. Um, they're good in the classroom. I mean, being able to scope projects appropriately, being able to communicate clearly with non-specialist audiences, these are all things that, you know, we do in the classroom just under different names. Um, 
And then the kinds of, you know, committee work and program planning and administration um, that happen just constantly in faculty roles as well. Um, there's many skills that I think we're not necessarily taught directly as grad students um, that are really valuable in those positions as well as in, in spaces outside the university. As part of my role at the UC Irvine Humanities Center, we do a lot of um, uh, work with graduate students around multiple career paths and faculty will invite me to come talk at their professional seminars and departments about multiple career paths. And I always talk about uh, being a professor as a job and kind of go through all the things you do as a job. And I say, Mm -hmm. it's not just the life of the mind. And the professor always sits there and laughs as I'm Mm -hmm. going through all of this because they're like, yes, this is so true. Um, uh, Because we do tend to, I think sometimes, certainly when we start graduate school, have a have a somewhat glamorized view of what Mm -hmm. um, a faculty position um, means and looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, the um, not everyone who gets a PhD goes into a tenure track faculty position or any kind of faculty position. And this has been true for a long time. And we, we keep going through these um, um, cycles of, of, perceived greater crisis, but um, this has, for the most part, been the case that not everyone goes into um, uh, faculty positions. You argue against reducing humanities PhD cohorts and programs, and instead you call for a more expansive view of humanities graduate training that is generative rather than replicative. And this requires breaking down, as you put it so well, the systemic bias that prevents scholars from doing their best work. What is the relationship between post-PhD humanities careers and truly inclusive scholarly spaces within the university? Thanks for this great question. Um, I think, you know, you you started this question by mentioning um, the the point that I make in the book about the size of graduate programs. And I, I think that this is one of the more controversial things that I say in the book and something that um, I think is really important because um, when we're talking about career pathways, it's not enough to talk about where people go after they finish. It's really important to also be thinking about like what are Um, What are admissions committees looking for when they're recruiting new students? Who do we see as belonging to the program or potentially belonging to the program? And um, if the program is constantly contracting to try and match a dwindling um, pool of faculty positions that are available afterwards, what I have seen is that those programs become more and more conservative in who they recruit and who they think could be successful within their program. Um, And so they look to, you know, traditional markers of potential academic success in a very narrowly defined way, you know, things like GRE scores, which we, we know they don't actually map onto student success, but it gives us something I think to hold on to. Um, We look to things like academic pedigree and knowing that that, that academic job market is so tightly constrained. Um, I think that this is coming from a good place that that faculty want they have the, they have students' best interests in mind, um, at least in a sense that they they want students to be able to have a job when they finish. 
it's just that there's some, um, I think, some narrow thinking around what that job can look like. So if that is sort of one way of looking at things, I think the other, another way of looking at it is to really crack that open and think, what if there are things about humanities education that we cannot imagine yet and that we need, you know, new student perspectives to drive us into new types of inquiry, um, new ways of thinking about um, really complex challenges and problems, um, and to recognize that you know, faculty and administrators who are already in the system may not know what those questions are yet. And to have a really open view of how we how we understand the potential impact of the kinds of work that we can do and the kinds of inquiry we can do within a humanities program. And so how I think that this connects to questions of equity is what I've seen at CUNY at the Graduate Center um, where I work is that students are often coming into the Graduate Center um, with quite a lot of career experience behind them already and often a lot of community engagement um, that's a, a significant part of what they do and how they identify themselves. And they're bringing this into their study. You know, it's not that they're pursuing a PhD over here and they have this volunteer work on the side that they do. It's that they really care deeply about the communities that they're a part of. They maybe went into um, their field of study because they wanted to understand something better or be able to have a deeper impact. And the kind of work that makes the most sense out of some of those lines of inquiry isn't always an academic paper in a journal. You know, it's often something that is more grounded in policy that's really going to change the way that a neighborhood um uses resources or connects with others. Um, I think that we've really seen a need for broader humanistic inquiry in this past year with COVID. Um, I I know being in New York when things were so bad early on, um, at least early on in in terms of the U.S. context, um, the science, the questions around science were definitely at the forefront of what I was hearing in, in public rhetoric. Um, but underlying that were a lot of really complex humanistic and social science-based questions that were not being asked until a bit later about why communities of color were more severely impacted in New York than, than others, why we were seeing ties between, you know, um, job loss, um, and, and the, uh, you know, the connected economic issues and, healthcare access and intergenerational housing needs, you know, all of these things were connected really deeply. And the the first questions that were mainly around science and the ways that the virus, the vi- the, excuse me, the virus was transmitted, were not getting at these complex issues. Um, and so I think that if we can think more broadly about recruitment, about admissions, about who we're looking for as you know, potentially contributing to the intellectual um, projects of our programs and departments, um, then that opens up a lot of possibilities for where that scholarship can go. I think one of the difficult things around that is that we have to be prepared to support those scholars and support that scholarship along the way. And I think that's where um, sometimes good intentions and um, systems and structures don't always quite align. Um, I think this is where you see, uh, you know, things like tenure denial cases, often of scholars of color, often of women of color, um, 
because they've been brought in to, you know, to work in a particular way. But in the end, that type of work was not well supported. Um, I think we see this in in uh, some digital humanities spaces, spaces as well, where someone is brought in to do innovative work, but then nobody knows how to evaluate it. And so it becomes um, something that's difficult to support. Um, but I think that, you know, attending to these questions of what we think of as the value of scholarship and the potential value of scholarship um, has to be something that we're thinking about at every stage of the academic life cycle, not only at the stage where people are looking for a job. Yeah, you start chapter three with this sentence. The question of what is considered successful in terms of research and career outcomes is at once highly subjective and highly normative. When I read that sentence the first time, and when I read it again, preparing um, the questions for our conversation today, I just had to sit with that for a moment because it is Mm -hmm. so true. It is so true. Mm in terms of um, graduate study, um, but particularly in terms of, um, I think, um, merit and tenure and promotion. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk some more about what it means to reframe what success is, reframe what successful scholarship is, reframe what a successful career looks like? because this means really asking hard questions about those norms mm-hmm. and um, what what would it look like if we're more expansive and what kind of work would we have to do to reach that point um, to be more expansive in our definition of success? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, returning to the question of prestige, I think that we, and I realize as I'm saying this, that I've used we in lots of different ways already in, in this conversation, but Um, We, as people who are part of academic institutions and often as representatives of academic institutions, um, need to be able to to loosen that grip of prestige a little bit and um, to to be more flexible in, I don't know, in how we think of the kinds of things that, um, that our work can do. I think that there's often a strange push and pull in... Um, in academic spaces. I see it among grad students, but I also see it at kind of a broader institutional scale of both overvaluing and undervaluing our work at the same time, where um, there's a sense that, you know, the the life of the mind is this um, really lofty aim and something that we think is really valuable. But at the same time, it's often hard to imagine our work having, again, like a policy implication or something like that. This is different in different fields, but um, I think there's just often a narrowness of where we think our work um, can make a difference. And so reframing that, I think it can happen at many different scales at the same time. One of the simplest things is for institutions to be aware of where their alumni are going and to really celebrate that fact, you know, not only to celebrate the kinds of um, academic positions that people are landing in, which I think is pretty common on university websites, but um, has anybody placed an op-ed, you know, what kinds of uh, interviews are people doing um, with with press or with other mainstream publications? Um, What kinds of jobs are people doing in, um, you know, different corporations or government agencies or anything like that? I mean, it's really easy to lose sight. It's easy for institutions to lose sight of 
of what people are doing and to really make that visible. But one of the things that I emphasize in the book is that, especially for people coming in as grad students who may not have a lot of grounding in what doctoral education looks like, may not have, this was the case for me, who may not have, you know, family who have gone to grad school or that kind of thing. People are always assessing the signs around them to try and get a sense of what is expected, what is valued, what should they be doing, and things like what's available on the website and whose voices are are celebrated um, is really something sig- significant that people can, um, can interpret, um, and I think do interpret in the ways that it's um, the ways that it maps onto the institution's values. Um, so celebrating the existing successes, I think, is one thing. Um, I think that, so I've I've been reading a book called Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Mari Brown. And one of the things that she talks about, this is in an, um, a context of uh, community organizing, but she talks a lot about fractals and the ways in which a fractal is um, has the same pattern at the smallest scale as at the largest scale. And I've been thinking about this in academic um, academic spaces and in um, in academic reform in particular. In thinking about you know what are the things that we can do at a small scale in say if you're teaching, what can you do in your own classroom to make these kinds of possibilities more um, commonplace, more part of the accepted norms, something that students come to expect. Um, and then how can that then, you know, that looks very different at an institutional scale, but within a classroom, it might be doing project-based work, you know, having students um, create something for their final project that is meant to be read or engaged with by a different audience than just the professor or just the class. Um, having having students do things collaboratively also, I think, just changes the relationship to the work and the sense of um, what intellectual engagement does and can look like. Um, so I think starting even at those smaller scales can can be a really significant part of how to um, start to shift these really sticky norms and um, patterns of socialization. You also talk specifically to uh, faculty and advisors about what they can do to start to make change, uh, particularly around advising and mentoring. Um, so tell us more about that. Sure. Um, I think that, I mean, really, I think the the burden for these kinds of changes falls on faculty and advisors and, um, and administrators. But really, I mean, I think that faculty are in a position of strength relative to students. They're in, you know, they're in a position of power that students read and perceive, even if the faculty member doesn't intend to necessarily have that kind of hierarchical relationship, it's built into the structure. And so students are always looking to their advisors um, to to read in them, you know, what's expected and what they can do. Um, I think that mentorship is really important and really tricky in this context because it often is something that happens in very individualized circumstances. It's one-on-one conversations between a student and a faculty member. Um, It's something that faculty by and large are not trained for in a systematic way. It's something that people are expected to sort of know how to do. Um, Many, many faculty members take different approaches to what that 
then looks like. And it leaves students with a very uneven experience, but one that they don't necessarily have um, a solid enough footing to be able to question. You know, if they're not getting what they need from an advisor, there's not much recourse for students, even to know how that relationship might look different than it does. Um, And so I think that questions of advising and mentorship are something that need to be addressed at a systems level as well. Um, I, I think that this is a tricky thing to do. One thing that I'm seeing at the Graduate Center right now that's new, and I'm curious to see how it will unfold, um, but the English program is developing mentorship clusters that instead of pairing a student and a faculty member in a one-to-one relationship, they're bringing together a couple of students, a couple of faculty members, people with different perspectives and in different stages of their careers, whether as students or faculty, um, to talk through some of these advising questions together. And what I like about that model is that it immediately destabilizes the idea that the, the advisor's perspective is always right. Because if you have even two faculty members in the room, they're not going to have the same perspective on something. And so just for the student to be able to see that two people that they respect that are in the same profession think differently about this my hope is that it can give the students a little bit more confidence to be able to say, oh, you know, my perspective is valid too. And to be able to look to advisors for guidance, but not to feel totally unmoored if, um, if it doesn't match their own, um, their own thoughts and experience. I think one of the other challenging things with mentorship, though, is that um, because it's not something that's highly valued in a concrete way, like in terms of tenure and promotion, um, it's hard to evaluate it. It's hard to um, quantify it. Uh, it ends up being something that uh, is fairly invisible and is often quite feminized. Um, it's a type of. It's often seen as a type of care work as opposed to a type of intellectual work, um, and. Because of that, you know, some people engage much more with that kind of labor than others do. And I think that we really tend to see the the burden, even for people who love doing this kind of work, that the burden of supporting students falls especially to women of color who often are supporting, you know, any students of color who are coming through the program and trying to find their footing, um, often seen as, you know, people who are caring and who will provide a listening ear. Um, and we we have to find a way for that to be more equitable. It can't just fall in an unrewarded way, especially to, um, to a small subset of people. And on the other side, of course, you have the graduate students. And I know from my work with graduate students that they often feel pretty buffeted by um, all the external forces of faculty expectations, the uncertain academic job market, not really knowing how to look for um, other kinds of uh, jobs and those job markets also being uncertain because typically if the academic job market is not doing well, it's because there are larger economic forces at play, which might make, you know, other job markets also, um, um, difficult, um, not having a lot of uh, career planning resources that are designed for PhD students, you know, really they feel, they don't necessarily feel like they have much control over their future. Mm -hmm. Um, So what can Humi's graduate students do for themselves and Mm -hmm. um, in what ways can they be 
taking action to shape their future. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to be really careful when I'm talking to grad students to um, emphasize that two things are true at once. One, they have a really powerful voice in the higher education system, sometimes more powerful than they realize, especially if they can tap into a collective, whether it's through a union or a grad student organization or something else. And at the same time, it is not their job to fix that system. It was there before they came. It will be there after they leave. Their job is to get through in a way that feels like you know they can maintain the integrity of their work, the integrity of who they are, um, and can finish hopefully without too much debt. Um, and so I think that you know keeping that priority in mind that like. On the one hand, it doesn't mean that grad students should hesitate to speak up and to try to change things that they that they think are not working within their department or within the system. Absolutely, they you know they have a, a strong voice in that. But I think it's also really important to to keep in mind that the academic machine moves very slowly, and that even if they're able to set something in motion as a student, they may not be there. It may be something that the next generation of students sees the impact of. Um, that said, there's definitely things that they can do um, to help, you know, protect themselves, to help set themselves up well for, for future success. Um, I think part of it is maintaining a sense of, um, of wholeness about who they are and what they want and really thinking about not only thinking about the academic side of what they do as being isolated from everything else, but letting that be embedded in their own, you know, individual embodied reality, whether that is as a parent who's taking care of children or somebody who, you know, feels really deeply connected to a neighborhood or to a particular cause, someone who might have, um, you know, past job experience doing doing something else. I think there's often a pressure that grad students feel to keep those parts of themselves separate from their intellectual work. Um, and I don't think that that serves them either in terms of a sense of, you know, wholeness or really in terms of the intellectual work. Um, I think that the different influences that we all have in our lives can lead to some very interesting research questions and allowing space for that for there to be some flow through, I think is, um, is great. And hopefully helps people to feel a little bit less, um, siloed into a particular space. Um, I think that if a student is coming in without job experience, besides like as a research assistant or teaching assistant, I think that is, um, that's something for, for somebody to think about, you know, if, if they're coming into a graduate position, um, and haven't had much time or opportunity to work in other spaces, if there are ways that they can start gaining some other kinds of experience, even if it doesn't necessarily seem relevant, I think that that's a very good idea. Um, And even things like, you know, the work that I've done, waiting tables has an impact on who I am and how I approach work and how I think about my relationship to other people and um, how I move through the world. So I know that those kinds of um, like casual labor possibilities are not an option for everyone. And especially for international students, they're really quite limited to the work that they can do within the formal structures of the university. But if that's not the case for you, you know, having some openness to exploring things that don't necessarily feel connected can be a really valuable step. Um, 
I feel at this stage, like looking back at my career path, I can draw a very clear through line, but that was definitely not the case when I was moving forward in time. Um, it, I did not know how to connect the dots as I was moving through each stage. So it's, um, it can be quite unpredictable how things will connect. Um, I think that there's a really fine balance for graduate students between saying yes and saying no also. And I think that um, having some you know, some self-reflection to be able to assess whether you are in a period where it's good for you to take on new opportunities, you know, and if someone offers um, a way for you to get involved in something new, to help plan a conference or to get involved in a committee or speak somewhere, there's a time where it makes a lot of sense to say yes to things that are coming your way. But then there's also a time where, um, the the cost and benefit of those opportunities is not necessarily paying off anymore and so having that that equation is different for for everyone but um you know maintaining some focus and knowing that once your dissertation is finished it's finished forever <laughs> and um being able to keep that goal in mind and and wrap up um in a way that suits the work and suits you and and the other needs that you have um is really important as well and then I guess the last thing I would say for grad students is to build up a strong peer network in any way that you can. Again, that might be through a union, um, might th- be through people in your cohort, in your department, but it might also be like pretty emphatically with people not in your department. Sometimes, you know, depending on the, the atmosphere of a given academic program, you might find much more support by looking for people who do similar work at other institutions. Um, I co-direct a... Um, uh, the administrative side of a, a network called Haystack, the Humanities, Arts, Science, and Technology Alliance and Collaboratory, um, which has a, a sub-program called Haystack Scholars that connects graduate students. And one of the things that I really like about this program is that it makes it possible for grad students at programs all across the country to be able to connect with each other and talk through some of the things that they're learning, the challenges that they're having, without necessarily having all of the really complicated political repercussions of talking to someone who shares an advisor with them. Um, so finding a strong peer group, either within you know your immediate circle or further afield, is something else that I really recommend. Throughout putting the humanities PhD to work, You talk about higher education and graduate study and scholarly research as public goods with high social value. And you conclude the book with a short reflection on building a university worth fighting for. What does that university look like? Oh, gosh. I I really have been trying hard to maintain a hopeful stance towards universities and by by thinking about the kind of university that we can imagine collectively um, this is one of the the exercises that I have for myself that keeps me feeling hopeful um, I think that the university that I imagine and that I want to be fighting for is one that supports its students and its workers materially um, where students are not you know taking on enormous amounts of debt, um, in order to be a part of um, of the intellectual inquiry that's there. It's a, a space where um, there's an openness and a curiosity to the different kinds of work that are possible. Um, it's a space that is more porous, I think, than most of our universities are in terms of its relationship to um, the communities outside of its classroom and office spaces. Um, 
I really, I have learned a lot being at CUNY in that regard, just because the university is so broadly distributed across the five boroughs that everybody who's coming to CUNY, whether as a student or a faculty member or as a staff member, has many different relationships to the city um, outside of uh, those academic relationships as well. Um, and so making space for what those relationships look like, um, I think is something, you know, if a university can allow for different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of learning, I think that it um, it will foster a greater sense of flourishing within those classroom and research spaces as well. So really, I think, you know, a space that is more egalitarian in nature, less hierarchical, um, more student-centered, more peer-driven, um, and, uh, and one that offers the kinds of material support that make it possible for people to thrive. Um, that's what I imagine. And you give us 10 ways to begin working towards that. Um, what are some of the ones you think that are most important or that you would pull out right now at this moment? Mm-hmm. I think that one of the most important things, especially for, for faculty members, is just to to listen. Um, I think that there's a lot of work that can be done um, in sort of loosening the holds of some of these norms just by making space for students to be asking different types of questions and to really listen to what they're saying. And then I think like applying that, that we all... I think we can, I can say that we all, you know, coming into higher ed, we all have a sense of curiosity about the kinds of intellectual work that we're doing. And I think applying that curiosity um, back to our own work processes and our own systems um, is a, a really good first step as well. Um, I also think that, you know, it, there's a balance to be had between staying focused on the here and now and having a sense of the broader picture that's important in thinking about how to get started. And everybody's in a different place as far as, you know, their relationship to the university um, and where they are in terms of the, the power structures of the university as well. I think having some awareness about what's possible within those spaces and um, trying to find that balance between, you know, what can I do today in terms of what I'm asking of students or the kinds of questions I'm asking within my program? And what are the bigger questions that I can start thinking about at a structural level um, that I may not see, you know, come to fruition? Um, But keeping a a balance between those small scale and large scale things, I think, is um, is an important way to, to dig in as well. So this book came out just and well, in 2020, so mm-hmm. um, and at the beginning of um, what turned out to be, you know, is still going on with this uh, pandemic and and pretty dramatic impacts, obviously on everything, but also on the university. How has going through the last 18 months and um, your experiences, what you're observing about of graduate education um, during the pandemic shaped the things you've been think that you were thinking about in this book. Have you um, changed your mind about anything? Have you um, um, 
double down on anything? Uh, <laughs> are there new things that you're thinking about mm-hmm. um, now that the, the book has come out given the circumstances of the last 18 months? Mm-hmm. It was such a strange time for this book to come out. I, I feel like I've gone through waves of opinions and um, really emotions about uh, what higher ed can do and is poised to do um, in the particular context that we're in right now. I'm, I had a moment of a lot of optimism um, fairly early on, which might sound strange, but what I was seeing was that all of these things that seemed so impossible to change, changed overnight. I mean, if anybody had told us at CUNY, even a couple of weeks prior to to closing things down, that we would shift everything online at the drop of a hat, there's no way, you know, it would not have seemed possible. And I think that 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 really massive upheaval in the early days made it clear how many of the constraints that higher ed faces are quite arbitrary and don't necessarily need to be as fixed as they are. And I had a hope at that moment that with all of these these, um, different pieces sort of shifting right under our feet, that we had a great opportunity to restructure them in ways that made more sense for the kind of institutions that we want to have. Now, 18 months in, I'm feeling a little bit less optimistic about that only because I have not seen the kind of fast and urgent changes that happened in the early days translate into longer term, sustainable, intentional changes. Um, And I, I feel quite a lot of disappointment about that, actually. I think that there was a really unique opportunity that um, those of us who are in um, faculty and staff positions had to really think about some things differently. Um, And I'm not sure that that opportunity has been taken advantage of. Um, I do feel like over the past year and a half, there's been a really strong crystallization of um, priorities for many people that uh, on an individual level, I think lots of people have done some reckoning with what really matters to them, um, where they want to spend their time and their energy, what they care about, um, who they care about. Um, and I, I hope that those sense of personal priorities and commitments carry through to the ways that we work together. I think there's been a lot of care. Um, that's been one of the things that I've felt most hopeful about is seeing the ways that individuals have really stepped in to support one another, even when institutions have fallen down a little bit. Um, And I think that that kind of institutional support on on a mutual aid type of model is the thing that gives me the most hope in where we might go from here as institutions. Um, I don't think it's too late to be making these kinds of changes. Um, I think it's always possible to move things in the right direction. and it's, I think it's, it's hard, you know, everybody feels, many people often feel like someone else is the one who's making decisions, you know, if it, we feel like we don't necessarily have control over the spaces that we're in. Um, and I hope that as we're emerging from this, that, um, you know, people, especially people who are not in precarious positions, people who are in more stable work positions, can have the confidence and the conviction to take a stand when they think there's something that can be changed, um, even if they don't necessarily feel that they have the power to change it. 
what would you hope or what would you like to see um, as we transition back onto campuses? Um, if, if graduate programs, faculty, administrators took one or two things out of all of this and, and really tried to make a change, what, what do you think might make the most impact a good question. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the power of refusal and the power of saying no. And I think that especially for people who are in positions of authority, to be able to look at, um, you know, questions of workload or things like deadlines within a class, you know, whatever the the particular scope of the question is. And to just say that that doesn't necessarily matter Um, and to to make more space for things to be done differently. I think that that's one of the biggest ways that we could see some change is in if, Again, you know, depending on positions of power, if people can feel less beholden to what are ultimately fairly arbitrary requirements and constraints and make more space for the real messiness of human lives that as people are coming into their graduate programs, um, I think that that may be one of the things that could make the most change. Um, this is something that I actually was really glad about, at least in the first two semesters of the pandemic at CUNY, was that they transitioned pretty quickly um, to give students a credit or no credit option rather than a fully graded option. And, um, you know, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that things like, um, you know, the particular ways in which we evaluate work, um, there's a lot more room for, not even negotiation, but just for more ample thinking um, in those requirements than than we often allow for. Um, but it's hard because the system as it as it is currently asks so much of everyone so consistently that it's hard to take a step back and create that space. Um, and so I think for anybody who's in a position where you can create a, a little bit more spaciousness, um, I think that makes it more possible for students to feel like they have agency in their own education, like they are able to, you know, be a person in addition to being a student and, and not feel like they have to separate themselves so thoroughly. Um so yeah, I mean, I think that on the in terms of things that are not money, I think that that's um, that's one of the things that would make the most difference. But ultimately, I mean, I think that we need to fund our educational systems better, you know. And this this goes beyond what any individual can do, but we need our our cities and our states to support higher education. We need to advocate for the fact that this is a public good and that it's something that benefits everybody, even if someone is not attending that particular institution. Um, And I think that without, you know, without resources, there's only so much that an individual can do um, to push back on the system. I mean, ultimately, like, (laughs) CUNY is so under-resourced, and I know this is true of so many public institutions, but we didn't even have hand soap in half the bathrooms going into the pandemic, you know? So you, you can't just ask faculty and students to make all of these changes in a vacuum in which they're not 
you know, when they, where they don't have the material supports that they need in order to be able to thrive. So I think that those emotional supports and the material supports have to go hand in hand. Katina, this has been a really wonderful conversation about putting the humanities PhD to work. I just, I find it a very thought provoking in the best kind of way book. Um, it, um, Every time I look at it, it gives me new things to think about, um, both um, in the big picture sense, but also in the work that I do at UC Irvine. And so I really appreciate um, that you wrote it. I appreciate the conversations that you've hosted um, uh, around the the publication of the book. And I, I think that it will continue to challenge us to think about how we, um, do graduate education in the humanities um, and send humanities scholars out into the world. So um, I really appreciate the book and I appreciate you taking the time to talk today about the book for the uh, New Books Network. So um, thinking now about this, um, uh, the, the future, what are you working on now? Uh, well, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure to have this conversation. Um, what I'm working on now, <laughs> I started I started working on this before the pandemic, and it has really changed valence over the last year and a half. But I'm I'm working on questions of abundance and joy in graduate education, and whether such things are possible. Um, I have talked to so many grad students you know, over the last 10 years of my work who are just really worn down by the system, who are, you know, suffering from anxiety and depression, who are feeling, um, you know, really at their limits most of the time in grad school. And I think that a different mode of working is possible. Um, I've seen it in the programs that I'm a part of at CUNY. I've seen it in some other programs at other institutions. Um, But I am not yet sure whether systems that really support people, that really emphasize a sense of abundance and joy, whether they can only exist at the margins um, or whether they can be something that's actually structured into the heart of a graduate program. Um, So that's what I'm working on. I'm looking to um, feminist writing, especially by women of color authors who have been doing this kind of thinking about sustainability and abundance and joy for a long time um, and connecting that with what I've seen as an administrator and what kinds of things might be possible. Um, I do not have an answer yet, but um, that's what I've been thinking about. Well, I'm, excited to hear about that project in process and um, look forward to talking to you about that in the future um, for another podcast as well as in other settings. So again, thank you very much for joining us. And um, this has been the New Books and Education Studies podcast with Katina Rogers about her book, Putting the Humanities PhD to Work. And so thank you very much, Katina, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here.